This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses' work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. Uh, today we are discussing the career of one of the most talented, and dare I say handsome, people working in US indie cinema, Christopher Abbott. Andrew, run down his history. Christopher Abbott was born in Greenwich, Connecticut in 1986. While studying acting at the HB Studio in New York, he moved to the city and began to audition for plays. He found supporting roles in theatre, which led to guest spots on Nurse Jackie and Law and Order Criminal Intent. His first film role came in Sean Durkin's 2011 cult drama, Martha Marcy May Marlene. He followed this with the Sundance drama, Hello, I Must Be Going, and a supporting role in seasons one and two of Lena Dunham's HBO comedy, Girls. He has stuck to mostly indie films since his debut, including J.C. Chandor's The Most Violent Year, Josh Mond's James White, and Trey Edward Schultz's It Comes at Night. He has occasionally worked in the mainstream with supporting roles in Tina Fey's Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, Brady Corbett's Vox Lux, and Damien Chazelle's First Man. He often plays complicated and hard-to-like characters, such as in 2018's Piercing and Brandon Cronenberg's lurid body horror Possessor, as well as his lead TV roles in Netflix's The Sinner and the George Clooney-produced Catch-22. Forthcoming roles include Black Bear, The World to Come, and John Michael McDonough's The Forgiven. He's a real ports pick, I have to say. I think he's very interesting for a multitude of reasons. Um, he does a lot of theatre. I saw a quote from him on IMDb where he said that he thinks acting in film and TV is all about capturing lightning and a bottle moments. So he doesn't do much rehearsal for the stuff he does on screen as he would in theatre. And reading that made sense to me because he always feels very alive and present on screen in a way that comes from being in the moment and maybe improvising certain things or always trying to surprise the director or others in the scene. And if he was a bad actor with bad instincts, that could be absolutely terrible. But I, I, because I think he's really talented, I, I think it actually makes his characters feel more real and unpredictable. Like they have a rich internal life that we might only be seeing glimpses of. And he reminds me of John Cassavetes in that way, who he cites as a major inspiration. And I also think what's interesting about him is that I, I find him kind of synonymous with this recent fascinating to me movement in cinema and i don't really know how to define it but it's sort of like definitely a u.s indie but it's not quite mumblecore because he's worked with antonio campos uh brady corbett sean dirk and josh mond people who often work together and produce each other's stuff and they all make these like dark stark disturbing thriller dramas which are pretty unmainstream and that they don't really have conventional narratives and or characters that are very empathetic but that's kind of what makes them entertaining because the characters are really interesting and compelling and not who you typically see represented on screen most of the time and because the stories are more unconventional they're thrilling because you generally have no idea where they're going and, and i think what separates them from the sort of mumble core is that they they actually look really good and like really stylish so you have all those people but then he's also working with Brandon Cronenberg, Nicholas Pesch. I think all these movies have a sort of black bear as well. They all have this daringness to them that uh, I'm not really seeing in any other kind of cinema. Also, the last thing I'll say, he's of Italian descent and I'm of Italian descent. And he, he's how I wish I looked. When he's in the tux and possessor, drunk off his face, about to start a fight with Sean Bean. And like, that's life goals. That's what I want. Well, you can, so, do, yeah. you can probably fight, start a fight at some, with Sean Bean at some stage in your career, Stephen. I'll be like, you weren't that good in Ronan. He's good in Ronan. I don't know why I said that. Fucking coward in that movie. His his character's Um, bad. His character's a bad guy. What's your relationship like with Abaddon Square? I don't think we've ever talked about him. Did did you know much about him before I suggested it? 
I had never heard of him before you suggested him. Um, I think um, someone had briefly mentioned him in, uh, that he was the boyfriend for the first two seasons of Girls and they were really disappointed when he left the show, which Same. I think is uh, quite a vibe when uh, when you bring up Girls with people. Um, and I'll be honest, I watched mostly um, the thrillers and horrors he's in for this and, uh, you know, I wasn't... Uh, I'm not, I wouldn't count myself a fan. Oh, this is a hot take. No. Yeah, yeah, no, it just, okay. uh, I just, I find him, uh, maybe it's just these movies, like, I haven't watched, I haven't seen Martha Marcy Mimeline or James White or any of these other movies that he is, um, you know, apparently, these dramas that he's apparently so good in, but I just find him, I just found him very kind of dull and kind of distant and aloof in a lot of these movies, which is fair enough, but Ryan Gosling already did all that and uh, eventually moved on, whereas Christopher Abbott seems still stuck in that mode to this day but we, we can get into that as yeah we totally okay well i guess i'll kick off with uh james white because i think it was his first leading role and what's interesting about my relationship with abbott is that his career sort of exceeded my expectations at first because i was a big fan of girls of the lena dunham show and I, I really liked abbott's character charlie who was marnie's nice boyfriend who she couldn't really work out if she actually wanted to date and he abruptly left the show in season three, reportedly after butting heads with Lena Dunham. Uh, he later said it was because uh, he he left the show because he couldn't relate to the character anymore, or the role. It should be said he later returned for an episode in season five, which explained his character's absence and wrapped up his arc in quite a dramatic fashion. It's one of the best episodes of the entire series. It's called The Panic in Central Park, the name being a hint as to what happened to his character. So he and Dunham seemed to be on okay terms, but at the time I remember being a bit like, what are you doing, man? You know, walking away from a great HBO show, like, I really like Charlie, your character. But not soon after leaving, he starred as the top character in James White. And uh, I'm sure people who saw it at the time were like, oh my god, this guy's a real deal. Like, he doesn't need girls. It's it's streaming on movie library now, but I, I actually think James White makes a, an interesting comparison to other people. The Jesse Plemons movie we talked about in our last episode. Because they're both movies where character actors got to play lead roles for the first time. And are both semi-autobiographical stories based on their director's experience of losing their mothers to cancer. But I think whereas other people manages to balance the horror and sadness of losing a loved one to a prolonged illness with a lot of warm emotion and a surprising amount of comedy james white is much more of a harder like starker look at that experience and because of that it's probably less entertaining and a tougher sell to people than other people but it did impact me and stick with me a lot more and i think it's mostly down to abba acting crazy man yo listen hey just relax. Don't, don't you're walking more, fast, man. man. You're walking, walking too fast, man. You're walking too fast, man. Chill out, man. man. Chill out, man. Don't it's come me. at me hey, like man, that, you man. Out, you know what I'm chill saying? Out, don't fucking come well, at I'm me right like here. that, well, I'm right man. Here. I'm right here. I'm right here. You need to relax. You're scaring us. You're scaring Jane. You need to relax. Listen, she may die any day. She is scared to death. Hey, it's me. Hey, come on. Get off. No, I'm here, man. Come on, just relax. Yo. I need you to relax, man. Yo, you get Are you okay? You see? You need to relax. No, you see what I'm saying? You're scaring me, yo. You're scaring me, bro. If you want to get do it. When we meet James White, the character, at uh, first, uh, not going to lie, he's kind of the worst. He's this, you know, 20-something New Yorker with no job who spends his night drinking in nightclubs, starting fights. 
hooking up with high schoolers at one point uh he's pretty unpleasant to be around there's a scene early on where a young woman uh who's actually played by a pre-fame zazie beats which was cool to see and her friend they're talking loudly in a bar and he wants him to quiet down and the stuff he just says to them casually is really shocking and there's another scene where he slaps a teenager at a party suddenly for just interrupting him when he's talking with his girlfriend and his character's quite like volatile in a way that's scary to be around like if you saw this guy in workman's you'd go into a different room but Mm. i think over the course of the movie you get a sense that his thrill-seeking kind of party ways are him trying to escape the troubles of his life and his destructive nature and these outbursts are the way his anger and fears about those troubles manifest because the movie kicks off with his estranged father's death and rather than deal with it in a mature way like he makes a scene at the memorial and then takes a lad's trip to mexico and it's only really his mother being diagnosed as terminally ill that forces him as much as he tries not to let it impact or affect him to become more mature and abbott is in every scene of james white and it's got that safety bro the whole movie is that safety brothers you know u.s indie camera aesthetic like it puts you right in his face or just behind his shoulder so you're constantly like following him tracking him and despite being like on screen nearly 100 percent of the time i don't think there's a moment where his performance ever feels performative and it's partly down to the right director James Bond who shoots in this like verisimilistic manner. Like people talk over each other. There's always, there's always something happening. There's always movement in a way that feels very true to life. And I think with that freewheeling style, there's lots of moments for Abbott to riff and improvise and try to find those like striking lightning in a bottle moments of truth. I think he searches for, but like he he's so convincing as this waster who has the potential to be better and i think he's, he's as i mentioned i think he's very good looking like he's got he star looks I don't, I don't think it's surprising that george clooney puts him as the lead in his lavish adaptation of like a classic book but i think there's something in those dark eyes and face that enables him to switch quite easily between charming and something darker and like you'll see that duality and stuff like piercing and possessor but it's there in james white too and he manages to convince in these quieter sensitive warmer scenes between james and his mother who's really well played by um cynthia nixon from sex in the city miranda mm. and yeah. he shows in these scenes that like his character is capable of goodness but at the same time like he never also like shies away from the nastiness in these club and party scenes where he's being a brute and just can't get out of his own way for whatever reason whether it be fear or anger and like he makes those scenes feel ugly and dangerous as they should but we're committed because he establishes in other little moments that deep down there's something good within him and just as the movie like starts to like push you into thinking like james white is just destined to just repeat the same behavior over and over again the movie along with abbott and nixon delivers this like tour de force scene like it's in the middle of the night and james's mother's temperature rises dangerously high like she's coming to the end of her days like she can barely speak or walk he has to carry her to the toilet and there's a scene where he like takes his mother in his chest and they close their eyes together and in the bathroom he describes this alternative future where she has beaten cancer and the two live in paris and are happy and he describes being married and having kids and having her be a part of their lives and seeing him for once as he says like a kind and loving man and it comforts his mother and gets her through the night and it's the only time the movie ever really slows down for a tender scene as opposed to one that resembles a car crash like when james goes into an interview <laughs> half drunk from the night before with a handwritten cv and asks one of the employees where if they could charge his phone for him <laughs> you know but like that scene with abbott and nixon is so like delicate and beautifully played and heartbreaking and it makes you do a full 180 on the character because you see abbott in the scene trying to comfort her before gradually being like swept up in the, his own fantasy he's creating realizing that's actually what he wants and then coming back down to his kind of current disappointing reality and there's a great review of the movie by brian talerico 
on RogerEbert.com where he says that like you, you watch him like find his purpose in this scene. And it's all on Abbott, like it, just the camera is focused on him. And it's just subtle changes to his voice, the speed in which he's talking, kind of vocal intonations, like his breathing. It's all these things he uses to convince viewers like this is a life-changing moment. And it leaves you feeling not only like you hope James White will grow up, like, you know he will. And like I, I really enjoy this movie. It's on movie. Um, I don't think it's an easy watch, but it's uh, I think it's a pretty great one nonetheless. Mm. Uh, do you want to talk about the movie that Jackie Early Haley directed? Yeah, sure. Um, so Criminal Activities is a movie in which Christopher Albert plays Warren, a newly sober coke addict who, with his three friends, his three high school friends, Noah, who's played by Dan Stevens, Zach, who's played by uh, Michael Pitt, and Bryce, who's played by Rob Brown, invest heavily in a company that later goes bankrupt. So in order, in order to pay back their debt, they must kidnap and hold gang member Marques, who's played by Eddie Gathagy, at the behest of mobster Eddie, who's played by John Travolta. Now, so if that plot line isn't confusing enough, wait until you see the rest of the movie. <laughs> so just on Abbott, he's just, he's, for a former coke addict, he's a lot less jittery than everyone else in that situation. And he's, most of it is because he's given very little to do in comparison to the likes of Michael Pitt or Dan Stevens, who really um, have a hold on the main situation. I think the problem is that there's no real foundation to his character um, beyond his like struggles with addiction, which is kind of barely shown. Like at one point, I think he's like drinking a beer or like a, a railing a line of coke or whatever, um, and there's like he has like this shared connection with to an event in their in the main group's past that uh, um, he and Zach remember a lot more fondly than um, Noah and Bryce do. That's um, Dan Stevens and Rob Brown's characters. And um, he's just one of those characters that every time he's on screen, you you remember he's in the film, but once he's off screen, you forget about him again, uh, which isn't really Abbott's fault. It just kind of feels like the script forgets about the character, and Warren is just kind of there to boost the numbers of the main players without really adding anything to the plot. Like, if you're going to have a, coke, a recovering coke addict in your movie, you know, make him jittery, make him paranoid, make him nervous, whereas the likes of... Um, Noah, Zach, and Bryce all do a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to like um, kidnapping this guy and you know being really nervous around him and not, not being sure about which way they'll um, they're they're gonna swing before the movie ends. Um, whereas Warren is just sort of there and um, not really doing a whole lot. And but I still think this movie is pretty good. It's a you know it's a kind of generic. Um, feels like something that come out, would have come out after like the usual suspects in Pulp Fiction. And, but it is kind of everything around the main storyline that's kind of interesting. Cause there's, these, there's these bumbling FBI agents that are trying to rescue um, um, Marques, who's an informant for them. Um, and that's only like, that's num- number one of the big twists that happened in the last like half an hour of the movie. Um, it's well worth watching just, just to see how everything plays out because pr- it gets pretty crazy. And uh, it's, it's worth it just for that. Um, so the bumbling FBI agents and there's a part where they're like um, they're trying to get information out of this guy and they're shaking him by the ankles over um, a multi-story parking lot uh, but their shoes just slip out of his hands and he falls and splatters on the ground below <laughs> and uh, John Travolta is relatively reined in uh, as Eddie uh, except for the fact that it was around the Adil Dazim thing he said at the Oscars when he was introducing, introducing Adina Menzel so he just looks very weird it's like he's like, he's like a Ken doll that's just past the, uh, at the point of melting and he's always drinking like wheatgrass and kale smoothies and he's like it's just not the same as green tea or whatever 
Um, and Jackie Earl Haley, who directed the film and who people will know from uh, Watchmen as Rorschach, his character Jerry has all these like fun side adventures with uh, his sidekick Big Mike, and the two are just basically the same kind of person. They both have like brown leather jackets, they're both bald, and they both have like long goatees, and they just walk around. They're looking for this person, but they're mostly just walking around, beating other people up, and telling weird stories. For instance, um, Jerry, Jackie Early ha- Earl Haley's character has a story about a kid named Isaac who uh, rescued him when he was growing up. And there, he's telling this story to these two Irish mobsters who have this black guy just hanging up in the corner uh, by his wrists. And then at the end, the story ends and Jerry just shoots the two mobsters and Big Mike's like, what the hell, Jerry? Ah, uh, they had it coming. And he looks at the black guy in the corner and is like, hey, Isaac. Hey, you need help? Yeah, <laughs> cut him down. And I think it's moments like that. All those stuff with Jerry feels really funny and earned. And most of the twists do as well, I think. But I think um, they're all pretty fun and surprising. Um, but barely any relate to Warren except the final twist. And there's nothing deeper to him. And I think Abbott is kind of left to try and puzzle out a deeper life to this character when it doesn't really exist. And I think mm. that's the main problem with right. his performance. I think the movie is um, well worth seeking out, though. Yeah, I'd never even heard of it. I didn't know Jackie or Hay directed movies. So mm. I'm, that you've definitely added it to my watch list. Do you want to hit piercing? I'm curious what you think of it. Yeah, sure. Christopher Abbott plays Reed, a young husband and father with violent psychosexual fantasies. In order to avoid harming his wife and child, he hires sex worker Jackie, who's played by Mia Wasikowska. But before he can go through with it, he realizes Jackie is just as much of a sociopathic mess as he is, leading to a deadly game of cat and mouse. The first step is to get her tied up and gagged. She'll probably try to run and scream. Is everything all right, sir? Everything's fine. You could still kill her. What? (laughs) The first one, she knows what's going on. I want a way to remember this. She's being fake. The second one is, but she's like crazy. And wants to die. So take her home and stop her, right? Yeah. What's the third? Third one is... She wants to buy some time. What's the nastiest thing you've ever done? Oh, God, I don't like that one. I know, that's the worst. So I think one thing that Abbott does very well is blank in that he's um, generally quite good at convincing you that uh, he's projecting this air of cool to the world when inside there's like this boiling sea of emotion that's pretty well hidden. Sometimes too well hidden, to be honest, uh, behind this stony mask that is his face. And it's, kind of, it's sort of like the inverse of the cool guy acting, Ryan Gosling perfected and patented and then ran into the ground during his indie phase. Whereas I think like there's nothing about Abbott's characters that actually seem cool if you think about them for longer than 30 yeah. seconds that's kind of the joke in piercing right yeah like, like, yeah he has everything set up in the first 20 minutes mm-hmm. and then it's everything it goes, goes wrong yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um and i think the fact is is that is the fact that the the most men with the kind of fantasies that reed has are incredibly boring so like if you take out the crime serial killers committed like ted bundy gary Ujway, or other like depraved fucking people like them you'd find very boring men at the center um who just who are just either love or hate themselves too much and Reed is no different to these guys he's just a lot less 
successful if you get me you know there i did i did air quotes there um <laughs> you know we shouldn't measure your success in um killing people in horrible ways <laughs> um, I had, if you needed to hear that then i'd seek help um and i think abbott really pulls off the the whole like i have no desire except to kill look really well sort of like um kind of like christian bale in american psycho except at least christian bale is you know, capable of faking other things, whereas Abbott doesn't seem capable of faking anything in this movie. And I think my problem with this movie is that it's written by a guy called... It was based on a book called, but written by a guy called Ryo Murakami, who wrote the Japanese novel Audition, which is directed by Takeshi, Takeshi Miike, which is a masterpiece. And these two movies kind of fall into the same, like, hyper-specific genre of, like, romance horror... Uh, whereas like two people are kind of in a, this cat and mouse game but one is way more fucked up than the other is even if the other is pretty fucked up already and I think the problem with the problem I have with piercing is that it never really seems like it has time to breathe it feels like it's someone is trying to cram a more complex version of audition into a smaller runtime which doesn't do it any favors whereas audition has like two hours to breathe and really establish these characters and play off both sides um, of the really messed up relationship at the centre of it and that's these kinds of movies if you're going to make it in this kind of very hyper specific genre of like romantic horror then you need to give it the time and build up if you want it to be successful in what it wants to portray and I think it does read a great service in that we know why he is the way he is like he has all these um, you know flashbacks and hallucinations about his mother and there's this horrible mon- little monster thing really disgusting actually now that I think back on it that crawls out of like a sewer he's imagining or something like that but we never get this for Jackie um, yeah. she's just kind of there and we're left to puzzle out her intentions and when you have no information about her character's past you can't really inform yourself to their present and I think Audition, regardless of what you think of it, gives us both sides of a really messed up relationship, even if it is a little more skewed towards the male perspective. Um, whereas Piercing is all, all the way skewed to um, Reed's perspective. And it doesn't give any amount of time to Jackie's perspective. And I think it suffers for it. I totally agree. I, I think it, it starts off so strong. And I love the whole introduction with... Christopher Abbott's read in the hotel room you see him like meticulously plan every element of this killing that he's about to do we see him like doing the dismembering but it's, he's just doing it by himself like there's you just hear the noises of like the imagined noises of it but it's just him doing it which answers really it's, it's obviously so disturbing because you know he's a creep and like he's got these like as you said like these kind of vacant black eyes in the movie which are very haunting but it also adds this strange detached quality where it's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah. he, he's a bit like American Psycho, but with, I don't know, no self-confidence yeah. or no belief in himself or something like it's just it's something that's very gross but then also like it's it's very distancing like it makes you laugh and even the music cues and everything like that so you see him like meticulously plan every element of the thing he's like four minutes and he's checking the stopwatch and then the minute Mia Vazakowska comes in and she's like can I use your phone can I get a drink and she starts bossing him around yeah. and he, you automatically you just see that he's like panicking like he's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's like the whole movie is a bit of a prank on him but I do think though that 
I love the performances. I love the artificial world of the movie and the colors and the eclectic mm. soundtrack, but it does feel very hacked up. I, I think it's a very odd choice not to give Vasquez's character backstory. I also think that in the latter half of the movie, because my view of Vasquez's character is not fleshed out, the character motivations take a backseat to the violence. And, mm. you know, I, I quite like the ending, like that final line, like that's, you know, yeah, spoiler. I did enjoy that's, that. Yeah. That suggests this routine between them will just go on and on. But I, th- I think it would work a lot better if we had spent more time with Abed and Vasquez's character and knew them better particularly her um it's a bit frustrating to me that like pesh put so much work into the look of the film and was so close to like achieving brilliance but just didn't quite get a handle on certain elements to the movie's detriment but i still think it's totally worth watching as like this kind of midnight cult movie and it's on netflix just on abbott i think what he sort of nails as well as that blankness is that well like you never relate or sympathize to him at all because he's you know he's a goddamn murderer Mm. but i do think he kind of makes his character's loneliness and sadness feel surprisingly palpable at times there's that scene where we see him calling his wife for help and they're running through the scenarios that could happen outside the hospital when he drops me off after she gets injured and his wife is like vasikos could be in there like calling the police and he's like yeah yeah don't, i don't like that and yeah. she's like yeah that's the worst thing <laughs> it's very funny but then after that we realize it's all in his head and he he couldn't get true to her and that she most likely doesn't know that he has this evil compulsion inside him mm. and he's just left alone at this phone box and it's like he wanted to share what he was going through with his loved one but couldn't and it's the same thing later when he's drugged by Vazakoska and he's you know he's tripping out he's calls for his wife and i, I think those little human details are important for what the movie does become this sort of like less a serial killer thriller but more of this you know as you say kind of romantic horror Mm. character study about two like damaged fucked up people finding an outlet to purge their negativity together consensually there's a lot that's very interesting in the movie it's just a shame that it doesn't all piece together yeah as you heard in the intro this show is part of the headstuff podcast network ireland's largest network of independent podcasts there's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network here's a taster of one this is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written or ghostwritten. If you ever read about the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, Elizabeth and Jessica, with their eyes the colour of the Pacific Ocean, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. But of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnappings, stolen boyfriends and seemingly mandatory school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuck Plus, it's just €5 Euro plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. 
Do you want to talk about It Comes at Night? Sure. In, in It Comes at Night, uh, Chris Brown plays Will, a man who invades the woodland home of Paul, uh, who's played by Joel Edgerton, and uh, who lives there, who's living there with his wife Sarah, played by Carmen Ajogo, and his adopted son, uh, Travis, Kevin Harrison Jr. And Will is in search of food and water for his wife Kim and uh, his young son, his wife's played by Riley Kyo, Elvis's granddaughter. Um, and instead of killing him, Paul helps him and invites Will's family to stay. And despite the bonds of survival tying them together, mistrust festers within this small family unit. To be honest, I think this film feels more like a trailer than anything else. It feels like a trailer for a, a better, more uh, detailed film. Uh, I think this is the kind of nightmare reality of all those idiots on Twitter that say all films should be 90 minutes. Uh, and, you know... Like, I believe if a film can say what it needs to say in 90 minutes, it should be 90 minutes long. If it says what it needs to say in three hours, it should be three hours long. Um, I think in this we get the bare minimum of character, story, and plot with uh, the occasional little details scattered around. But, like, little details don't make a full picture. And I think the film suffers for it. And Paul, Joel Edgerton, and Will Christopher Abbott are the only two characters that feel like they actually exist before the unnamed disaster of the film disrupted everything. And that's only by virtue of them discussing their past. So Paul was a history teacher and Will was like this transient kind of construction, demolition, mechanic um, guy. And I don't think anyone else nearly gets developed nearly enough. Like we never really know much about Carmen Ajogo's character or Kevin Harrison Jr.'s character or Riley Keough's character. And I think... We've seen dozens of these films before, and this one makes me feel like we don't really need more of them if this is all they're going to do with it. And now, with that said, it's tense as all hell and well worth it if you're looking for a 90 minute thriller, even if there's not much underneath the surface. And I don't think it's necessary for us to know everything about a character in order to relate to them, but we do have to know something about who they were so we can relate to who they are in the film. Um, like, you don't need a massive flashback, you just need a a couple of sentences here and there of um, who these people are. I don't think we ever get it. And we, we certainly get some of it with Will, but I don't think we get enough to really um, invest in him and, you know, kind of uh, decide who's right and wrong or, or even or not when things eventually do come to a head in the movie. And so, for instance, Paul was a teacher, so we can guess at why he's like so compassionate, like choosing to save Will and his family instead of killing them. Uh, whereas Will was kind of a transient jack of all trades, so we know why he's less trusting and not as willing to stay in one place. But we never really get the details on the other characters as much. I think that's uh, kind of my problem with the movie. But I think it, I think it is a good time if you're looking for something that is uh, uh, pretty nerve shredding. Yeah, uh, I quite liked it. I remember seeing it when I moved to Canada. It was the first movie I saw there, and I I remember feeling similar to you that you sort of it's a lot of build up and not quite a lot of payoff. But that it was very tense. I remember kind of Chris Rabbit sort of almost being kind of a plot device in the movie where it's just like, don't trust him. Yeah. Don't yeah. like him. <laughs> the minute he shows up, this guy seems dodgy. It's <laughs> all hell. Um, yeah, which I think he plays quite a lot of characters that I like that. I'm going to talk about a movie where he it could go either way as well. Um, Terrell. 
Um, I love this movie. Um, this was a recent movie discovery for me as well. So James White and Terrell are both on the movie library. Um, so in this movie, Jason Mitchell from uh, Straight Outta Compton plays Tyler, a black man who decides as his girlfriend's family arrive at the uh, the apartment they share to take his friend Johnny, the Christopher Abbott, up on his invite to a lads weekend in the Catskill Mountains in New York to mark uh, Johnny's friend's birthday, uh, the birthday boy played by I Know The Face all-star Caleb Andrew Jones. And um, the weekend that follows is essentially just microaggressions the movie. <laughs> you know, like it's all little things. Like one of Johnny's friends calls Tyler Terrell, giving the movie its title. Uh, Caleb Landry Jones is a little menacing. Um, I know it's, it's so unlike Caleb Landry Jones oh. to be menacing in a movie. Uh, he, he's a, he's a it's saint. unthinkable. I know, but um, Tyler says, you know, like, nice to meet you. And he's like, we met before, didn't we? At the restaurant? And Tyler's like, I don't think so. And he's just weirdly kind of insistent on it. Everyone else there is white, and Tyler's race is occasionally brought up awkwardly. And also they're lads, and they have a lot of non-PC banter. And then there's the fact that essentially Tyler just doesn't really have a lot in common with these people who are all extremely close to each other and like to do, I don't know, white man man things mm. like binge drink and Blair OREM. And so you're just like, essentially just watching and following Tyler as he struggles to connect with Johnny's friends, which leads to friction between the pair of them. And then Tyler then blames himself and decides to just embrace the weekend and get super drunk and stoned, but then gets sloppy and makes a fool of himself. And all the while, the the microaggressions build up and things get slightly weirder. And the the movie's constantly like building this tension as everyone becomes a bit more inebriated and land, or less inhibited over the weekend. Of like, is this gonna turn nasty or is this gonna turn violent? Is this gonna be get out? You know, mm. or is it all just in Tyler's head? And I think those who want some sort of clear horror payout, which uh, the trailer for uh, Tyrell really promises, like it, the trailer's crazy. It like represents it as like a full horror movie to the extent that there are things in that are menacing in the trailer that are not really in the movie. <laughs> They're just like there's a scene where Michael Sarah shows up in a like a limo wearing this kind of crazy mask and in the movie it's a joke but in the trailer it's like a horrifying thing. <laughs> um but so I think that those looking for an elevated horror will probably be disappointed in this movie. But what I loved about it is it captures the feeling of being othered in a very accurate way, yeah. in a way that I've never seen quite depicted like that. Yeah, and the movie is clearly linking, you know, the feeling of being othered up to what it's like to be a black man in America, because the weekend happens at the same time as the inauguration of Donald Trump, so you hear him on the radio and the TV in the background, and I think the fact that it always feels like it, at any moment it could turn into something violent and horrifying is, says a lot about what it means to be a black prison in america that fear but i also do think that anyone who's found themselves stuck on a drunken night out with people you didn't really like or know out of some obligation to a mate to be there like you you know you're a plus one i think people like that like people who've been in that situation will find terrell a very stressful but also like strangely gripping and exciting and kind of relatable watch did you take my lighter yo why were you just about to punch me in the face just then my bad, brother. I just, I just didn't want to play the game, you know? Sorry. Are you freaking out right now? Is that, and last night you pretended to fall asleep? Pretended to be asleep? Come on, man, seriously. Yo. Why would I do that, bro? Yo, you were definitely pretending to fall asleep. Like, why are you making shit weirder than it already is, bro? Why is it weird in the first place? Well, you're fucking friend Pete, for one. <laughs> oh, come on, dude. I told you, Pete's just a weirdo. You know that. <laughs> He doesn't mean anything by it. 
I think in terms of Abbott, like the whole movie has the feel of like a freewheeling Casavetes movie. It's like a lot of improvisation. It's guys being dudes. <laughs> I think that's his wheelhouse. But the fact that like Abbott can, I think, dance between being like just on the on the face of it, sort of an affable bro, to also being quite menacing, like you'd, you'd see in more stuff like Piercing and Possessor, is quite effective in Terrell during the segments of the movie where you're like where is this going like i feel like something bad is going to happen like but i think what's kind of interesting is that like by the film's end and this is i feel like we're spoiling a lot but this is sight spores you get the impression that what it really is is just that like he likes tyler and is just a little frustrated that he and his other friends aren't mingling in the way that he wanted which i think is also quite relatable so yeah, yeah. I think it's a very good movie in terms of just people's dynamics and how kind of like other people can be hell yeah, <laughs> and yeah. how um, social interactions are a battlefield. Um, do you want to hit uh, Sweet Virginia? Yeah, sure. Christopher Abbott plays Elwood, a young man who murders three men in a small Alaskan town at the request of Lila, who's played by Imogen Poots. Uh, while awaiting his money, he befriends motel owner and crippled former rodeo rider Sam Rossi, who's played by a huge, hairy... John Bernthal, which further complicates matters. Maybe you didn't hear uh, my friend. Did I have the early bird special? What? The early bird special? With a glass of water, please. You need to go right now. Mm. No. I can't. Uh, I'm hungry. Maybe you're not understanding what I'm saying. Do you do you have a wife that you have to get home to, a Mitchell? Is it Mitchell? Is your name Mitchell? Do I know you? I don't know. Just be straight with I'm me. being straight with you. Can I have the early bird special? Please? just on Abbott's character Elwood he's a pretty unnerving strange guy he kind of speaks in a slightly too loud monotone and seems uncomfortable around women but desperate for the, for the respect or friendship of people like Sam um, he's kind of you know, socially as, as most movies about these kind of guys will tell you it's socially awkward and sociopathic are a deadly combination and he's a he's, this guy's a real champion of putting his foot in his mouth so he sees like uh, Sam Rossi has like a a World War II German rifle hanging above the counter at reception in the motel he owns, which is called Sweet Virginia, from which the movie takes its title. And he, uh, um, Elwood sees the rifle and he's like, you a Nazi? And he's like, no. <laughs> and then at another point, um, uh, he's talking to this guy in a car and he's like, the guy lights up a cigarette and Elwood says, uh, those, those will kill you one day. And your man's like, bullshit, my grandfather still smokes. He's 83 and as healthy as a horse. And Elwood just goes, he'll be dead soon. And it just cuts there, <laughs> and or the kind of bit where it's this the second meeting between um, Sam and Elwood, where Sam pulls up in his truck and sees Elwood out smoking it. Actually, yeah, El- Elwood smoking. Weirdly enough, um, <laughs> and uh, Elwood's like, "Hey, hey!" And Sam just goes, "Shit!" And then they end up having like a conversation at a diner or whatever. Here's the thing, I don't think Christopher Abbott is all that good in the kind of movies that I covered for this episode, so mostly thrillers and horrors specifically, and I think when it comes to genre movies, I think he's kind of miscast or even picks the wrong roles in these movies. Um, I think I just think, like, in a film like this, 
it would be better served by a different actor who's better at projecting either like nonchalance someone like Jesse Plemons maybe who's like secretly a psychopath under the surface or someone who's like totally insane like Caleb Landry Jones um, and none of this kind of in-between stuff that Abbott is doing but I mean it works for certain I think it works for certain movies but you're never on this guy's side is what I'm trying to say is because it, it opens with him murdering three people and things only get more complicated from there I think if it was a, if it was a little bit more ambiguous, I think um, we'd be able to at least empathise with him a bit more. Whereas it it has all this kind of in between shit where he gets along really well with people like Sam, but people like Sam don't really like him because they they see the awkwardness in him, um, and he's just really awkward around other people and says all the wrong things, and it's um, he's hard to empathise with in the wrong way like certain characters are hard to empathize with in a like and because he's impossible to empathize with there we go simple <laughs> I, I, I it's been a year since i've seen this movie mm. i caught it one night on epic if i recall i love abbott so i'm gonna kind of defend him a little bit mm. i'm not sure if we're supposed to ever empathize with his character in sweet virginia because he's a like a sociopath right? yeah yeah i get you yeah he's the villain um absolutely but um I, I remember just thinking, like, he, he's in that movie and he's you know, having scenes with John Bernthal. And you're like, what is this guy's deal? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's so strange. I think it is kind of, yeah. I think I, I maybe I wanted something more complex out of it. Like, it is really straight down the middle. John Bernthal is, like, this crippled good guy and uh, Christopher Abbott is this absolute horrible sociopath. And I think I'm, I might have wanted something a, bit, a little more... The kind of blood simple, you know, the yeah. cop in that movie. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. And uh, when I didn't get that, I guess I was a little disappointed. Sh- you, Anton Chigurh, kind of, that yeah, kind of vibe. Exactly, yeah. I think it would... I think this movie would be would be a great adoptive father daughter drama with more focus on Sam and like the girl who he's obviously very close with who sees as kind of like a surrogate daughter, um, who's called Maggie who's played by Odessa Young and she works the reception in the mornings for him. Cut out Elwood and boom, Sundance, Sundance, here we come. <laughs> Do you want to talk about? Look, this I, it's kind of unbeatable. Possessor. Is it unbeatable? I feel it's beatable. <laughs> I actually, I feel like I owe Possessor an apology because I put it at 11th in my best films of 2020 list. It just missed out my top 10. I've seen it three times there more than any film that was on my top 10. If I could go back and change it, I would. Okay. But do you have the plot there? I do, yeah. Christopher Abbott plays Colin Tate, the coke dealer fiancé to Ava Pars, uh, who's played with Tuppence Middleton. Tate's body is taken over by Tanya Voss, a corporate assassin played by Andrea Riseborough, in order to kill both Ava and uh, Ava's father, John Pars, who's played by Sean Bean. Just think, one day your wife is cleaning the cab litter and she gets a worm in her, and that worm ends up in her brain. And the next thing that happens is she gets an idea in there too. And it's hard to say whether that idea is really hers or it's just the worm. And it makes her do certain things. Predator things. Eventually you realize that she isn't the same person anymore. She's not the person that she used to be. And it's gotta make you wonder. Are you really married to her? Are you married to the world? Yeah, I'm going to let you take the lead on this one, Stephen, since you love it so much. 
this is one of those movies where a bit like anti-viral Brandon Cronenberg's other movie which we talked about in our Cave Landry Jones episode it has such brilliant world building within its like kind of 15 minutes in the future type setting like the little details are so good I, I love to revisit it that toy that Andrea Riseborough's character's son has early on that he can manipulate into doing what he wants on his mm. computer that's essentially just the movie in a metaphor which I love all the stuff with Jennifer Jason Lee and the facility where they're explaining to Riseborough that because Abbott's character Colin has irritable bowel syndrome and Riseborough is taking over his body she may feel some discomfort and they're like that's nothing to be worried about all that stuff is so smart and funny and creepy and so Cronenbergian Colin's job spying on people through their webcams so he can take pictures of their curtains to gather corporate information <laughs> every detail is so evocative but I think unlike Antiviral it also has these kind of urgent thriller plot lines. Like, firstly, the elaborate hit that Riseborough is using Khan's body to commit, but then also then the the war between their the psyches for control of Colin's body. And I, I think to paraphrase what you said about Antiviral, I think this is a movie that gets there. And um, I think what's also unique about Possessor is that most sci-fis are centered around fantastical premises ideas and worlds and this is the same to an extent but rarely are sci-fi so dependent on human characters as opposed to archetypes and performances as possessor is and uh well i think the movie is bookended with andrea riseborough whose character arc in this is absolutely brilliant and shocks me every time um i think the whole movie you are watching con possessed by riseborough's character tanya Sometimes with her totally in control, sometimes partly, sometimes it's her pretending to be Colin to his wife and friends. Sometimes it's just him confused with just no idea what's going on and in the brief moments where he gains uh, ownership of his body. And I think what's incredible about Abbott here is that like, you always know who he is in that particular moment, like who is in control of the body. And any time that you don't for like a brief second or a moment only adds to the story. Like I think it's such a clean precise performance for how messy it could be if you were trying to read it in a screenplay and track like who's him at this moment you know what i mean and i also think a lot of the movie scenes are essentially structured around being showcases for actors like when tanya is told as colin to make a scene at his father-in-law's dinner reception he's played by sean bean so it'll seem like colin had motive to kill him later on and i think it's electric in that scene because it's like an acting exercise like he's finding those lightning in a ball of moments like the way he kind of hovers drunkenly next to bean before demanding an apology and the way he's kind of like tilting his head in the scene and he's saying like i feel like you owe me an apology and sean bean's like oh is that right do i and he's like i have a feeling such a strange line delivery and then his screaming as he gets like pulled away like you think you can step on me i'm a fucking giant is so strange and you're wondering like is that a little bit of colin's own like feelings towards his father coming out in that scene or is tanya just doing such a good job at acting and there's some really good stuff there um i I just think there's so many layers of performance in possessor because you're 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 watching in that scene like you're watching an actor play a character playing another character but there might be traces of that original character in there and like it's madness but it works and it's a similar thing uh and this is another one of those details in the movie that i think is really amazing but the scene with the it's like the emotion regulator device that andrea riseborough is given to help her i think sync up with her host and it's just Abbott in a mirror, like cycling through emotions, moving with the flick of a dial from happy to upset and back again. And it's another scene just seemingly written for an actor just to showcase their skills. And like, I think Abbott kills it. Like, and even in that scene, it's almost like we somehow see the real Colin in Abbott's eyes, like just behind them, terrified. It's almost like they're in the sunken place and get out. 
but it's just Abbott in a mirror acting. Like, there's no special effects, there's nothing. And I, I just think Brandon Cronenberg puts so much on Abbott in this movie, and I, I don't think he really puts a foot wrong. That's fair enough. Now let me um, dress down all those uh, <laughs> points. No, um, you know when you it's, come across... It's some... hard to debate you because I like you. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, we, can, we couldn't we do, should, like, a prime time started debate. as enemies before we started, started yeah. this podcast. No, um, I think when, when someone argues a point so well, you kind of don't want to... Um, come up against it just because uh, it's very clear how much they love a movie that's what uh, that's what I'm feeling right now but I just think this movie just doesn't work for me and I still don't think Brandon Cronenberg is quite there whereas maybe I'm just maybe I'm just comparing him too much to his uh, dear old dad David Cronenberg uh, who kind of broke onto the scene completely obsessed with the themes of like physiology and psychology and minds and bodies and how they interacted uh, from the get from the get go, and made like had an insane run of incredible movies. Um, whereas to me, it just seems that maybe I just didn't get the movie, or maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Whereas Brandon Cronenberg just seems more obsessed with like the goopy effects his dad used to render his themes. And or for me, looking at his career so far, it just seems to be entertainment first, theme second. Whereas David was able to give both equal weight. And for instance, for instance, in like the brood, everything relates back to the central theme of the film, which is the breakdown of the nuclear family and the creation of a new kind of mutant one. Whereas in Possessor, one of the major themes is interpersonal connection, our attachment to other people and their attachment to us, I think. And I think also privacy, also people's relationships with their jobs. Yeah, I'm just talking about this one though. (laughs) (laughs) And I think um, Brandon Cronenberg puts this on screen in a very literal way and it's in a way that's not very that I don't find very scary regardless of how like violent it is and I think it feels kind of ham-fisted as opposed to the likes of the brood which feel which I think feels very elegant regardless of how many external wombs or mutant dwarf children David Cronenberg throws the audience's way and I think uh, just on Abbott I think I think he he's kind of guilty of underacting in in films a lot and I think he's he's kind of reaching for overacting in this one as well. You know, the Jake Gyllenhaal school of falling to your knees and crying the moment something bad happens, which is fair enough in this in this movie because you know a lot of bad shit happens to poor old uh, Colin Tate. But I think in certain scenes and basically nearly every scene in the likes of uh, It Comes at Night or Sweet Virginia or whatever, he'll just come across as very distant and aloof and dull, to be honest. Um, I think it it does work in Possessor because he's possessed by a corporate assassin. And I don't know if this is a case of bad direction or Abbott's own tendencies, um, but I think a bit more emotion on screen never hurt anyone. I think uh, I think I would just like him to see him be more consistent in or just a bit louder in terms of the emotion he displays in a lot of these kinds of kinds of movies. That's fair. I would counterbalance that being the fact that like you have so many actors who. I don't give these very broad, big performances. And what I kind of like about Abbott is that, like, I don't think people go around acting like they're in a movie. And maybe uh, there's something about that I think is kind of underplaying and him reaching for these kind of, like, little, like, line readings and, like, lightning in a bottle is the thing I keep saying. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, those things where, like, he's the, I have a feeling, which isn't really feel like a line that someone would ever write down, but it feels like some, something a drunk person would say. I kind of like that he downplays yeah. in a way that I think grounds things and, like, makes them feel more yeah. realistic. Yes, just after covering Jesse Flemons, I think he's just a lot better at it than Abbott is. And 
you know, he just dances that fine line way, way better and way more elegantly than I think Christopher Abbott ever could, to be honest. No. My last counterbalance to what you were saying. Now, this took a few watches of Possessor to really gel me. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I was a bit struck by, like, why are all the special effects in this movie like a Lucio Fulci movie? <laughs> mm. You know, like, why do when people get shot, like, it's like a blood capsule goes on this. But I do think it's... It, in the way that the movie is sort of, a, I think, about, uh, like a lot of James Cromwell movies, sort of about the intersection between kind of flesh and technology, I do think the movie sort of kind of reduces human beings' as bodies to components. We're wet work. You know, we, we, exist yeah. to in, we exist to kind of intersect with tech. We're becoming that yeah, way. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the point it's tra- the, the kind of shocking violence is trying to make, like that we're all just kind of like pieces. I've only got one thing to say to that, Stephen. Long live the new flesh. <laughs> um, Grant, I'll just talk about Black Bear because this just came out last week. I have a long review over on Headstuff. It's a bit of a hard movie to talk about because it's it's very out there. Mm. And um, I don't want to spoil too much about it. But it, it's another kind of mind-bending American indie um, starring Abbott. Although, admittedly, he, he takes a bit of a backseat in this one uh, to a never better Aubrey Plaza. Um, Plaza plays Allison, who begins the film as in actress turned filmmaker who is in between projects and is looking for inspiration and she rents a room at a remote lake house which is run by Gabe played by Chris Rabbit and his pregnant dancer girlfriend Blair played by Sarah Godon who's another kind of Cronenberg regular in order to try write a screenplay and Blair and Gabe quickly reveal themselves to be unhappy together as evident by their constant bickering meanwhile the mysterious Allison drives a further wedge between them and so this is where the kind of spoilery stuff comes in as the first act reaches this um, incredibly tense and like twisted crescendo the movie just resets to its opening scene which is like Aubrey Plaza looking at into a lake except in this section portion second portion of the film it's actually Abbott's Gabe and Plaza's Allison that are married and Gabe is the director, and he's making a movie starring Allison and Gadon's Blair that seems based on the events that we previously saw in Black Bear's first half. But what's kind of strange in the second section is that Plaza and Gadon's characters appear to have such roles as kind of scorned partner and interloper, with Gabe looking to stoke conflict between his actresses in order to make his picture feel even more real. It's like for hundreds and hundreds of years, the nuclear family meant everything to people. Right? Everybody had their defined role. Now, that's broken down. There's no real sense of, uh, of family or, or community yeah, anymore. Communities that viewed women as private property. Well, yeah, and from our modern perspective, that may seem terrible. No, it's objectively terrible. Objectively? I'm six foot one. That's an objective fact. <laughs> Are you following this? And yeah, as I said, I wrote a lengthy review of this over at Head Stuff. Uh, it's it's one of the most interesting things I've seen all year, and I think it's it's quite fascinating as a comparison point to I'm thinking of ending things, which we discussed in our last step. Because I think both are surrealist movies, which play with the notion of identity, and where you come away being like after first watch, saying like I need to watch that again to to fully get a grasp of it or you know fully understand it. And uh, I'm quoting my review of Black Bear, but like I, I, I think it's kind of a caution. On first watch, it feels like a cautionary tale about how making true art can damage your relationships and those around you because it's, it's all about it's all about artists who sort of use their kind of like personal struggles to create but then like it, it really damages their personal like connections with people but then also like it could be just like simply like a depiction of a writer kind of working through different drafts of a screenplay or is it more kind of literal like just kind of like a surreal you know persona three women movie about shifting identities and kind of my first glance it's a bit of all three but whereas you described i'm thinking of ending things as a bit of a foggy mess 
where you're not really sure if its ideas add up to much and it's a bit weighed down by its own self-seriousness and it doesn't really give viewers a lot to latch onto. Black Bear is sort of the complete opposite. Like, there's a lot to grab onto. It's very funny. It's very playful. It's tense and scary at times. And if anything, I, I think that the two different halves of it are smashed together because just it's writer director Lawrence Mike Levine. I just think like them both and just wanted more. <laughs> like he wanted to do them. It's very it feels like fun. Mm. <laughs> and and um, I think what's also great about that structure is that it lets actors try shit. Like Aubrey Plaza, you know, starts off the movie being this kind of mischievous, kind of in control person manipulating people in the first half to this like terrifying pill popping insecure diva in the second and Sarah Gadon goes from being this kind of uptight scolding partner to this young ingenue Christopher Ablett goes from this resentful confrontational bro in this who's afraid of the Virginia Woolf type relationship with Gadon to this kind of caricature of an artsy asshole director who's playing his actors like pawns you know to make his movie better like there's a great scene where Abbott's directing a scene uh, while gesturing for an assistant to put nuts in his hand to eat, which was apparently Abbott's suggestion, which I think is so funny. <laughs> and I just think it's it's fun to analyze what the movie is trying to say by doing that switch halfway through and analyzing the performances to see like what is what is the change like what is it trying to say like are, is he, are, is the movie saying that there's something about these two people that are the same? Is it trying to make a point that? These people are totally different. I'm not exactly sure. So that's why I kind of want to rewatch it. But I also think maybe unlike something like I'm thinking of anything, it's incredibly fun in the moment because it, it's giving these character actors more to do and show their range. Particularly Plaza, who uh, has never been better and has never had a really had a role as big as this to mm. kind of show her skills. So um, I'd really recommend it. I, I, for one, can't wait to watch it again. Um, it's available. It's streaming on Curzon now, I think. Oh, cool. Um, I think that's everything. Um, I know Chris Rabbit's going to be in the new movie from John Michael McDonough, The Forgiven, which sounds amazing. I think that's Jessica Chastain and Ray Fiennes. I think Caleb Landry-Jones is in that as well. I think Caleb Landry-Jones is in it too. Reteaming after their masterpiece, Warn Everyone. (laughs) And he's going to be in... He's in that movie On the Count of Three, which was, I think, directed by Jared Carmichael. Yeah, yeah. Which um, apparently is very good. Uh, So I think he... I think he's just sort of a daring actor. And I understand your faults only might not be for everyone but uh there's just there's something about what he's selling i'm buying well Stephen, as confucius said we'll just have to agree to, to disagree <laughs> yeah rate and review and subscribe wherever you get podcasts email us at i know the face pod at gmail.com follow us at twitter at i know the face p1 follow us at instagram at i know the face follow us at facebook at i know the face pod as always thanks shining fernandez for editing and for running our socials andrew where can people find more of your work you can find me at the head stuff gaming section where we talk about what we play why we play and how we play it you can find me on the head stuff film section i've written two reviews recently one of black bear one of crisis uh, that have just gone up as we're recording uh also check me out at joe where uh, i'll be writing about news and occasionally the odd trailer and movie Please, if you listen to our show and you like it, consider signing up to Headstuff Plus and donating five euro a month. You'll unlock special bonus episodes of our show, four of which are available now, with more to come. On that note, see you later, Cinephiles. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.